Due to the themes of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. Lock your doors. Close the blinds. Change your passwords. This is Secrets and Spies. Secrets and Spies is a podcast that dives into the world of espionage, terrorism, geopolitics, and intrigue. This podcast is produced and hosted by Chris Carr. On today's special podcast about the Russian invasion of the Ukraine, I'm joined by Edward Lucas. Edward is the author of the 2008 book, The New Cold War, and he has been warning us for many years of an increasingly aggressive Russian foreign policy dictated by President Vladimir Putin. When Edward's book came out in 2008, he was largely ignored and ridiculed. But the recent invasion of the Ukraine by Russia has shown us, and should show us, that we could no longer ignore or dismiss President Putin and his geopolitical aims. Without further ado, let's get going. The opinions expressed by guests on Secrets and Spies do not necessarily represent those of the producers and sponsors of this podcast. You've been warning us about Russia for many years. You know, when I first saw news of the invasion, I was shocked but not surprised by it. So when looking at Putin's rhetoric and action over the years, I feel like we've been building towards this moment for some time. Were you surprised by Russia's invasion of the Ukraine? I was surprised. I am normally a super hawk and super gloomy. But on this occasion, I thought that Putin was bluffing and that it was, to use the Russian word, muskerovka, or distraction or camouflage. And the aim was to make us accept something less bad that he was going to do, like an invasion of eastern Ukraine um, on a much more limited scale. However, I have been warning about Russia and the threat from the Kremlin since the early 90s. And so in that sense, I do feel both vindicated and also furious because I've been warning since the early 1990s about the threat from the Kremlin. I'm not alone in this. The Baltic states are warning. Notably, the um, former Estonian president, Lennart Meri, gave a speech in 1994 where he basically forecast what's happened since this idea that Russia has a right and a duty to intervene on behalf of its compatriots and the West is part cynical and part naive. And I wrote my book in 2007 called The New Cold War. People laughed at it then, and they're not laughing now. Indeed. So what does Putin want, and how far do you think he could go to get it? Putin's made it pretty clear what he wants, and it wasn't just Putin. We've had problems with Russia that predate Putin, but the idea that Russia only feels secure when its neighbours are insecure making them part of some kind of neutral or demilitarized buffer zone is quite an old one. And the idea that Russia wants to intervene on behalf of what in Russian are called the compatriots, which is a vague term with no real basis in international law, sometimes also Russian speakers is used, uh, that has deep roots as well. But Putin's specific demands, which came out um, a few months ago, are in the ultimatum to NATO. And that is saying that he wants no NATO membership for Ukraine and he wants a withdrawal of all NATO, outside NATO forces and military infrastructure from all the countries of the former Warsaw Pact as well as the Baltic states. So that would basically put NATO back to its pre-1997 formation 
and would be devastating for the security of the countries concerned. He's also followed up with some other demands. So just to today, we heard the foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, demanding the withdrawal of all nuclear weapons, all American nuclear weapons from Europe. And that also is an absolutely stunning uh, demand on uh, against NATO, and again, one that at the moment looks completely intolerable. But what Putin's also showed is that he's willing to kill large numbers of people in order to get what he wants, and that's also new. Yeah, indeed. Could this war in Ukraine spell the end for Putin, do you think? Yes, I think it does, actually. And I see very few good outcomes for him. He was hoping, and some people in the West thought this was possible, that there would be a kind of blitzkrieg, that he would be in Kiev within a couple of days, that Zelensky and the Ukrainian leadership would be captured or killed, and that Ukrainians would basically shrug their shoulders and get on with their lives and reckon that one corrupt government is pretty much like another corrupt government, and that the regime was basically a Western project that would fail. And that turned out to be utterly untrue. It's is true that the Ukrainian authorities have many, many shortcomings, and President Zelensky has many of his own. But in the end, Ukrainians want to live in a uh, free society, which they more or less have, and they have aspirations to be in the same sort of political and economic system that we're in. And those are very deeply held, and they've really consolidated in the eight years since Maidan. And Putin simply miscalculated that. Now he's got a real problem. He can turn Ukraine into Syria with an awful bloody quagmire that will go on for a decade or longer where there'll be huge human suffering and he won't get what he wants. He won't be able to do what Stalin did and subjugate the west of Ukraine. He'd have to do all of Ukraine. And in an era of much more distributed technological and uh, military resistance, he can try retreating, but that would be a devastating blow to his prestige. If he tries to escalate, he risks losing the patience also of the Chinese, who are his only back backers, and they won't like it if he starts trying to cut gas supplies off to Europe or um, even using a nuclear weapon. So I think that he's got really serious problems, and the rot, which we see already from Russians in the, in the Russian soldiers in the field of defections, desertions, possibly mutinies, can spread back through into um, the heights of power in Russia. And there's also the prospect of street protests which may grow, and there's also the possibility of a palace coup. So I think he's, to put it mildly, bitten off more than he could chew. Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of commentary that he has been, um, since COVID-19, become more isolated and surrounded by yes-men. And also, there's a kind of growing fear about this conflict could get out of hand and go nuclear. What does Putin, who's backed into a corner, look like, and should we be concerned? He looks very nasty, and we should be very concerned. I think he's obsessed with the way Colonel Gaddafi and also Saddam Hussein met their ends, and he doesn't want to end up like that. And he's, we now see, has a much bigger appetite for risk than we realised. He was in a hurry. He felt that he was gradually losing Ukraine, so he wanted to move quickly. He thought the West was in a mess, and now was a good time to do it. And now that's gone wrong. He's, I don't think he's going to back down. I think he will, he will escalate. Now, one form of escalation is to crank down repression at home, and he's doing that with the final closure of the last fragments of independent media. He can crack down on the demonstrators. He, at least he can lock up, lock up hundreds and thousands of them. I don't think he can start locking up tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands, which is what the opposition leader, Alexei Navalny, has called for. Um, and he can double, up, double down, as the Americans would say, on 
the far power in Ukraine and just start flattening Ukrainian cities the way he flattened Grozny during the Chechen war or the way that he and the Syrian forces flattened Aleppo during the Syrian war. That puts even greater strain on the morale of his troops, further increases international outrage, and will, although may lead to the pacification of a particular bit of Ukraine um, through its destruction, won't lead to peace. It will intensify the hatred that Ukrainians now feel for their occupiers. Yeah. Is there a way to get Putin off the ledge, do you think? I think the Chinese offer to mediate is really interesting because China's in a unique position that they are able to put real pressure on Putin. And we've put a lot of pressure on, but China is his only lifeline. And if China says to Putin, this is the deal and you have to sign here, it has a chance of success in a way that a Western um, imposed settlement wouldn't. And Putin can't be seen to cut out of the West. He could be seen to do a deal with, do a deal with China. And for the Ukrainians, anything that China offers is probably better than seeing the destruction of their country. So I think I've been thinking about what the outlines of such a deal might be. And they would include, I think, the withdrawal of all Russian forces, um, certainly from territories taken recently and possibly also from the east and from Crimea, and their replacement with UN peacekeepers with a large Chinese contingent. The Chinese would just love that. It would get them into European security in a big way. There would then be the um, offer of referenda in these territories um, with uh, the option of either joining Russia or staying in Ukraine. And that would be very hard for Putin to say no to, as he claims that these people are yearning for the right to, to, to join Russia. And if they did, some territories did leave for Ukraine, well, that would be very sad, but it would be still better than what's happening now. I think Ukraine would have to give up, at least for a while, its aspiration of joining NATO, which is already pretty unrealistic but in return would get the opportunity of speedy and unhindered access to the EU, which would actually matter a lot more. And I think that deal could stick. I think the Ukrainian leaders would go for it. Putin could be made to go for it. The West would breathe a sigh of relief and China would be covered in glory. So that would be, you know, uh, I, I, I could see that happening. Yeah, no, it sounds something positive there. If, um, if Putin were to step down or be removed, would it make much of a difference, do you think? I think we should be very careful of assuming that whoever comes after Putin will be better. I think there are two broad outcomes. One is of a kind of disorderly end to his regime, where you have riots in the street, mutiny in the military, um, perhaps a fragmentation of power in Russia and some of the regions seeing the chance to go their own way and get rid of the hateful influence of the, of the centre. And that would be very chaotic and risks turning into civil war, though it might also end peacefully. And that you might end up with Putin still you know, running Moscow and the region around it and the rest of Russia having gone its own way. So that would be is one possibility. The other sort of broad possibility is, is some kind of putsch, either people, you know, people past storming the Kremlin or um, insiders saying the, the boss is going down, we don't want to go down with the ship, so let's make sure the boss goes down. And that could also happen. In either case, be careful what we wish for. We don't want civil war and massive disruption and the world's largest stockpile of nuclear weapons, as I mentioned earlier. And if there is a, a, a sort of palace coup and someone else takes power, they may not be you know, a friendly Democrat. It's more likely there'll be some kind of military strongman who says, I'm going to, you know, this episode in Ukraine was disastrous, but you know, we need a strong hand to hold Russia together. And that would be um, a new problem that we'd have to deal with. Um, it would be different from Putin. I'm not sure it would necessarily be better. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm concerned that Putin's successor might be the one who um, does try and invade sort of NATO countries and so on. I think that that's a very real possibility. Well, I would slightly disagree with that because I think that the what we what we've seen of the Russian military now is that it's not really capable of invading anywhere. I think there's, uh, I mean, if there's going to be military escalation in the Baltics, it's not going to be land invasion. Um, of a sort of conventional kind. I think it would be much more based on precision strikes and nuclear intimidation. Um, but I think that the Russia's reputation for combined operations, big wars, is in tatters after this. And the, if you think, imagine a convoy of that size not sitting outside Kiev with the Ukrainians having very little opportunity to attack it, but imagine that trying to attack Vilnius and every one of those vehicles would be in flames from um, NATO precision strikes before the end of the morning. Yeah. Now, um, Lund- you've been talking about this for a while as well. London has a problem with uh, dirty uh, money from Russian oligarchs. And um, is enough being done to root out this dirty money that's at the centre of London at the moment? Absolutely not. I mean, I'm extremely pleased that things that I've been campaigning for for more than 20 years are now happening. And yeah, anything's better than nothing. But we need a much deeper and more systematic um, look at the problem. Um, what we're doing at the moment is a kind of whack-a-mole where we identify a target and then find a way of making life difficult for them with a combination of visa bans and asset freezers and possibly penalties for the enablers. Um, but I think we need a, a, a much deeper and more sweeping and more coordinated approach. And for now, the London laundromat may be temporarily closed, but it's not out of business. Yeah. And what can, I mean, is there anything else that can be done to kind of, um, are there any extreme measures that you would recommend to sort of end that sort of, uh, that dirty money at the heart of London? Oh, absolutely. And there's a huge amount we can do. So one thing I think we should say is that shell companies have no recourse to the law. So if you set up, you know, podcast enterprises, Inc. of the British Virgin Islands, fine, you're welcome to do that. You can set it up at company's house. Um, you can lie about the beneficial owner or not disclose it. But if you want to go to court, you've got to have a beneficial owner. And that will mean that all these shell companies effectively become outlaws. They can choose if the beneficial owner is there, then they can go to court. They can conduct business with um, in, in the kind of real world. As shell companies, they can only really do business with other shell companies and do so without recourse to law. And that turns them in, I call this the outlaw approach, that they become outlaws. And this will be very bad news for the bankers, lawyers and accountants who service these companies. But it will give them a very binary choice, either explain who owns you or get out of the civilised world. So in the terms of the London property market, for example, that would mean that shell companies can no longer buy property. They can no longer sell property if they own it and they can no longer rent it out. I'd add on top of that a new thing saying that if you have residential property worth, say, more than a million pounds and it's owned through a corporate structure, you have a year to show who the owner actually is. Otherwise, that property goes to the Treasury. And that would harvest several billion pounds, I think, for the hard-pressed Treasury, um, because there are some of these properties that are owned by people who can't or won't explain who they are. So that would be just one thing, but that's that's a sort of clear, systematic approach and doesn't involve going through companies one by one trying to work out if they're dodgy or not. You make them prove that they're not dodgy, and if they won't, then the assumption is they are. Yeah, yeah. I saw in Parliament just, I think it was yesterday, that um, some lawyer, British lawyers are now being named in shame for working with oligarchs. Do you think that's a positive thing? Absolutely. And I think there's plenty. What I'm suggesting on that front 
is that all the those people, whether it's people who sit on the boards of um, Kremlin crony companies or people who have Kremlin crony individuals or entities as clients, but that you know, those bankers, lawyers, accountants, real estate people, PR people, um, all these people, retired politicians, are going to face a new kind of sanction, which is that they can't travel to the United States or to Europe if they're British. If they're American, they can't travel to Britain or Europe. If they're Europeans, they can't travel to Britain or the United States. So we create a kind of triangular sanctions regime where we don't do anything against our own citizens because that's legally and possibly politically tricky. But we give their names to the Americans. The Americans probably know them already. And the Americans say, sorry, you don't pass our smell test. You can't come to the United States. And this would be devastating for this class because one of the things that they, thing that they really have in common is that in their personal and professional lives, they travel a lot. Mm. Yeah, they're used to getting on planes the way ordinary people get on buses. And suddenly they can't. They can enjoy their holidays in, you know, in Britain, in the United States, in Europe, but they can no longer go abroad. We can then, th- if we throw in, um, get the Australians and the Japanese and maybe the Singaporeans and the Swiss and others to join, it becomes really devastating. Now we can discuss what the way out is for these people. Do we expect them to turn Queen's evidence? Do they just have to give it out their clients or what? We can discuss whether we make this list public or private or mixture. But this would be an absolutely devastating blow to the Kremlin's enablers in the West. And I um, really hope it comes into force soon. Yeah, definitely. The other, another issue for Europe is um, a dependency on sort of Russian gas and oil. Uh, what can and should be sort of done about that? This is very difficult because we are in, have a long-term, or at least medium-term, dependency on imported fossil fuels. And this is infuriating because nobody made us do this. Nobody sent tanks crunching down the streets of Whitehall with training their guns on the energy ministry and said, don't build interconnectors to friendly countries like Iceland and Norway, but instead make yourself dependent on imported gas. No, we did that to ourselves, and the Germans did it big time. The Germans have huge dependence on both Russian gas and also other fossil fuels, particularly you know, the coal and, and oil. The advantage or the saving grace in this is it's the one source of Russian foreign, foreign currency income. So they get a billion dollars a day from their energy sales, and that unfortunately sustains the Putin war machine, but also keeps the Russian economy afloat. So I think it would be difficult for Putin to cut the gas off, but he could, and if he does, it'll be very difficult. We have a choice between domestic heating and cooking, which is important because these people vote, um, keeping our fertilizer plants going, which is important if we want to avoid famine, and the rest of heavy industry, which is um, employs a lot of people and pays a lot of taxes. And some mixture of those is going to have to pay the price for gas being um, not just expensive, possibly outright scarce. Yeah, yeah, that's quite worrying at the moment. Now, we've mentioned China already. There have been discussions about China watching the international community's response to the invasion of the Ukraine in regards to their own ambitions to possibly retake Taiwan. What do you think the future holds with an increasingly powerful China? Um, I wouldn't immediately link Taiwan to Ukraine because China is horrified by what Russia has done um, in Ukraine, they would have accepted a, a sort of very speedy blitzkrieg, but they absolutely don't like this. China prizes stability above all, needs stability um, because it needs economic growth and rising, rising living standards to defuse the um, social and ethnic and other tensions that it has in the giant country. And they are very big on territorial integrity and uh, sovereignty and non-interference in internal affairs. And Russia's trampled on all that. So although they've given some light diplomatic backing at the beginning. They now would like to keep, as I 
discussed earlier, would like to get this over with quickly. Um, Taiwan is still front and center for the United States, and it's been very noticeable that the Biden administration, although it's done a fair amount on Ukraine, is absolutely keeping its focus on defending Taiwan. And that's fine. That's actually a source of stability rather than instability. It'd be much more destabilizing if we thought the United States was abandoning Taiwan and encouraging China to do something risky. I think the problem for China is this global sort of rejuvenation of the West, where we have NATO back in business, the EU suddenly decisive and effective, Germany taking security seriously, the old rise about Brexit disappearing as Britain gets into European security, the transatlantic relationship renewed, the um, public opinion realising and decision makers realising that freedom doesn't come free, but involves economic sacrifice and military risks. All that's quite bad for China because China needs the West to be divided and distracted and complacent. And if we are awake, we'll be awake to other things as well. So that's another reason for China to try and close all this down. Yeah. Well, we've got a couple more questions to wrap up on. The first one is about there are some commentators with regards to Ukraine who currently want to blame the West and NATO expansionism for provoking Putin. What are your thoughts on that? I think this is a sort of Kremlin canard. And what Russia has done is show exactly why being in NATO is important. And the um, every time Russia bullies its neighbours, it underlines the case for NATO. What everyone forgets, because nobody apart from me and a handful of people were paying attention, was that this was a problem back in the 1990s. You know, NATO enlargement didn't come out of thin air. It wasn't just cooked up by some sort of you know cabal of national security hawks and arms manufacturers. It happened because countries like Poland were already scared of what Russia was becoming. So countries like Poland were concerned even in the 1990s. The Estonian president, Lennart Meri, in 1994, gave a blistering speech at a conference in Hamburg warning both about what was then called the Karaganov Doctrine, the idea that Russia has the right and indeed the duty to intervene to protect its compatriots, and also blasted the West for its mixture of cynicism and naivete in dealing with that. Um, So those fears were real, and we responded to them, I I think, rather slowly and rather mildly. We expanded NATO um, always a bit behind the curve, and when we did expand and take new members in, we didn't give them any real protection. We had a um, you know, members where we had no infrastructure on their bases, no outside forces there. We didn't even have, not only we had no contingency plans to defend them, we didn't even have a threat assessment because it was considered until 2008 too provocative even to make a threat assessment of what Russia might conceivably do. Now, Russia changed that. Russia decided it wanted to have NATO as an enemy. That was Putin's decision, and um, he's living with the consequences. So let's look at what happened. We had the cyber attack on Estonia in 2007. We had the war in Georgia in 2008. We had the Zapad 09 exercise in 2009, where Russia suddenly, out of the blue, had a very large, very secret, um, very aggressive military exercise on the doorstep of the Baltic states, where it rehearsed the invasion and occupation of the Baltic states and finished up with a dummy nuclear strike on Warsaw. And that message was received and the West then started getting serious and we put um, a handful of forces in Poland and the Baltic states. And after 2014 and the attack on first attack on Ukraine, we then put tripwire forces in. But just bear in mind, we have 1,000 Brits in Estonia, 1,000 Canadians in Latvia, 1,000 Germans in Lithuania. This is not a force that can in any way menace Russia. It's not even really an adequate force to defend the Baltics. This is a tripwire force um, done as a signaling exercise. And Russia chooses to regard it as provocative. Well, if we have a choice between Russian nerves being jangled by 
the limited security we offer to our East European friends and allies and consigning them to what we've seen in Ukraine, I know which I, I choose. Mm, indeed. Well, before we part ways today, do you have any sort of final thoughts or anything that's important to you that we haven't covered today? I think there's two things. One is that we must bear in mind there is an absolutely enormous humanitarian catastrophe. This is the biggest movement of people in Europe since the Germans were expelled from the Sudetenland and Silesia after 1945. And this is the nothing we've ever done in Europe, not the refugee crisis with the Syrians, not the refugee crisis after the ex-Yugoslav wars. Nothing is on scale of this and we need to really strain every muscle um, to meet this people are going to be dying of cold and hunger exhaustion and lack of medicine really soon unless we get going really quickly the other thing which i think is really important is not to descend into russophobia there's a kind of lazy um, equivalence where we just think all russians are bad we will never forgive the russians for what they've done well let's bear in mind a lot of these russians are conscripts they had no idea what they were doing where they were going um, many Russians loathe Putin. Many Russians live outside Russia because they loathe the Putin regime. Others can't leave for family or whatever reasons, but they loathe Putin too. Now, we can blame them, perhaps, for not being stronger in opposition. Um, and But we should, we should always remember that the it was, in the end, it was the Russian people who brought down the Soviet Union. It was the dem- democratic Russia that flooded the streets of Moscow and St. Petersburg. It was they that elected Boris Yeltsin, who was gave the, the, the death blow to the Soviet Union. So let's always look for allies in Russia and among Russians and not demonize them and make sure that um, we do everything we can to raise their spirits rather than pushing them into Putin's camp and reinforcing his narrative that Russia is a besieged fortress surrounded by people who hate all Russians. Wise words. Where can listeners find out more about you and your work? Uh, they can follow me on Twitter at Edward Lucas. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for your time today, Edward. Thank you for joining me. Well, Chris, it was a pleasure. I was honoured to be on your programme. Thanks for listening. This is Secrets and Spies, 